Hello and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. If you've spent any time observing the Richmond hip-hop scene, you may have come across an MC by the name of Black Lick, or Black Liquid as he used to be called. It may have been by hearing him MC, or perhaps as a DJ on one of the two radio shows he hosts. But if you get the chance to talk to him, you will realize that the philosophy shared through his works does not stop where the art does. Some folks talk about art as life, but with Black Lick, it's a philosophy lived, based on a wisdom developed from his own life, observing and orienteering his own path. And in a time where so much emphasis is put on what is easily shared, it is a nice break to hear from a person that shoots for something deeper, more contemplative, and so honest. I hope you enjoy listening to our talk as much as I did having it. How did you get into hip-hop? Uh, well, uh, listening-wise, my older brother uh, became... My brother, my brother Jimmy, right, became James and started to be cool. Like, okay. not like, because we, we grew up on, to give you some background on my upbringing, basically, I grew up, I was born in California, and we drove okay. across the, uh, the interstate following telecommunications work for my dad. And because of the fact that we constantly had to travel, it was a lot of, like, short-term amounts of time where I was in school, and the only person I hung out with really was my older brother. And my brother... When we got to Virginia, he we were here longer than we've been anywhere else. And I'm talking from California to like Ohio, Idaho, Massachusetts. You know, I think we lived in Michigan for a bit at some point, maybe Florida. Uh, just just all kinds of different places. And uh, Virginia became the one that we we're at the most, and where he was really good went to school with many friends that were going to be around for longer than usual, and that's how he got into hip hop. So I first became aware of hip-hop when I watched how it changed his personality. And I always say, like, on my old Richmond song that Jimmy became James, or Jimmy Trader James started pumping Wu-Tang. And um, from there, you know, he just kind of trickled it down to me. And I've always been really big into studying people. And I, as I grew up, I had friends who put me on to the fact that hip-hop was a major facet of identity. And so that's kind of what intrigued me into it, because I was always... Like, Marilyn Manson was the first thing I ever listened to that I, because people hated it so much that I was interested in what he was talking about rather than what other people were saying about what he was talking about. And then I found out about lyricism, and um, eventually I saw a friend freestyle on my man AJ Shorty Rock, and I was like, holy shit, like, people can do this. You know, like, we can all do this. And right. I just kind of fell into it. I used to write poetry a lot, and I got published in a in a college newspaper when I was in high school. I got published in a college newspaper in, in California, and I ended up posting my poetry on the Internet. And people didn't realize that I was writing verses, but I was writing in the poetry section because in the rap section, nobody was checking for anybody. It was all just about, like, style versus substance. And right, right. And, you know, I ended up creating hip-hop ultimately because I didn't like it in the music that was out, and it didn't. none of it talked about what I was going through. And I knew so many people that were going through what I was going through that I figured, you know what, it might not be the best sounding or it might not be the, the, the whatever it is that's out there we're looking for, but it's honest. And at the end of the day, you know, you you benefit from telling your story when others benefit from hearing it. So that's, that's what life is. It's just us sharing our stories. And so I decided that I would select hip-hop as my way to tell my story. And that's why I've never limited myself as, a, as like a rapper because 
I've used hip hop as a as a technique or a way for me to tell my story, but it's never been the limit of my story. So it goes from songs to my TED talk to the education to what I you know what I can do in a corporate place, what I've been able to do, you know, in in, in giving speeches. Everything is rooted in my skill set that comes from using hip hop to express myself. But I'm not just a rapper. And that's and that's yeah. how I use hip hop as like the compass for my life, and you know yeah. I figured out ways to make money and uh, a lot of ways to make change. But ultimately, it taught me about survival because when I started this, I was broke, like super broke on food stamps, living week to week, right. and I didn't care because I was like, hip hop has given me the strength to tell my story and not be afraid of what could happen because I've been through so many things, anyways. But that's how I've uh, that's how I, I, I found my way. And that's why, like, I, I still just do all things. Yeah, it seems like you kind of, like, you, you, you know, some people just share, like, they share the work of others. Some people just create. And you kind of do all of that. So you've got yourself as an MC, a DJ. You DJ at yeah. um, U of R and WRIR. Yes. And then... You're also a teacher, so you, you, you're kind of on all sides of it. What do you think is the main? If you had to kind of distill it down, like, is there like a over like a, a, a main message that you're trying to get out there to folks with what you do? Oh yeah, the uh, there's work wise. The message is that people, especially in in hip hop, are very entitled and into asking for things. And I was always raised to believe that you can't ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't do for yourself. And, and when you look into that, the premise always has to be to lead with learning, but live through understanding. And that requires the wisdom of experience. And so you can do so much more for yourself when you're willing to do something for someone else, especially when the attainment of that thing is something that you've always wanted for yourself as well, to the point to where you eliminate want and you create necessity. So, for instance, if we were to look at life in a dynamic of of perhaps commerce or capitalism, there has to be a multitude of successful people. There could be no singular successful person and when everyone's successful everyone is open if they if their principles are strong to being who they really are on the inside and sharing that with with confidence even if it means being vulnerable and so that's why i didn't go and say hey man play my song on the radio i just got a radio show i didn't say hey man book me for a show I just created shows for myself and for the people that I wanted. I wanted my people heard on the radio, just like I wanted myself to be heard on the radio. And you know, my my, my pops, he uh, he was big on your work speaking for your values and your work ethic being your value. And I'm not I don't ever claim to be the best at anything, but I definitely am willing to do whatever it takes with integrity to lead the way for my people to see that like if you focus on being better than someone else you're probably never going to better yourself i come from like a punk rock background so like the idea Mm -hmm. of like doing things yourself that's kind of like that ethos but in hip-hop it's been a little odd i mean there's there's definitely been artists that have done that but it's until recently kind of been 
not really the way it works. Like a lot of just artists in general, whether you're talking about like visual artists or music artists, they kind of, the way that it's kind of generally worked is, you know, they want someone to kind of pamper them and do these things. But this ethic, it's, it's the core of everything you do. It seems. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, and it's funny you bring up the punk rock stuff because I literally, my show series that, you know, the span of eight years, I came up with that whole way that I, I created a business model off of it. I used to do shows with the national and I, you know, I opened for like DMX and Snoop and, you know, Bone Thugs, all these big artists with all the big venues and stuff. And I headlined that place a bunch of times, like three or four times. And I was like, kind of like, you know, what can I do? Because this model is, is favorable in exposure and experience, but so unfavorable in work ethic. And I, I love that partnership, but I was seeking a greater level of empowerment for the people around me because I can only get like five artists on a bill up there if I was headlining the show. And I still had to build a model. And then I worked out to uh, American Hardcore, that uh, documentary. Yeah. And I saw the videos of the shows they used to throw with like Bad Brains and all those other groups. And, the, and like the idea of how the, the punk rock people, their goal wasn't to be famous. Right. You know, and, and that's what every, everybody wants to get. Everybody wants to be famous. And that, that's so stupid because like fame is not fortune and fame is not success. There's a lot of people who are famous for terrible reasons. I was like, what if I, I flip the whole model on the head and just make this about us? And like, you know, this is what I want. I don't want all the extra stuff. I need the experience and I need to create this place and this space and, you know, and, and inclusivity. My radio shows are about taking people into the freestyle realms that I was into. Like right now, we can't do it because of the pandemic, but it was always about saying, oh, you feel like you're not allowed to be here? Well, guess what? You were invited. The door is open. And when it came to the shows, oh, you feel like, you know, you get you have to go through so much nonsense to get a chance to do a show. I'm going to go ahead and let you in anyways. You know, I don't care about all that extra stuff about trying to impress people and and live a materialistic, pointless life where I love my success over other people. I've always believed that you're only as strong as the people you can lift above you. So I was like, yo, let's just do it this way and let's, let's really connect with people and let's recognize the fact that it's going to take time. Everything takes time, man. And a lot of people don't have it. In, in Virginia, man, the number one enemy of success has always been a lack of patience. There's so many incredibly talented people that I know and I've seen, and they give up because it doesn't happen when they think it's supposed to. What, what advice do you have for folks that are, like, struggling to to have patience for something like that. Uh, I talked to a homeboy, Sam, man. That's one of my people. And uh, he and I were talking. When he was in Richmond, we were talking. And he put it better than I could. He's such an articulate person. He put it better than even I can. He said that success is in process. It's not the result. If you're creating, you've already accomplished it. Anyway, the high-level version of that is that, that Drake uh, Grammy speech where he's like, if you have anybody who, who knows the words to your song, if you have anybody in your city who, who looks up to you, you've already done it. You don't need one of these statues to know that success. And people always look at, I put up a post today about how people look at how things aren't rather than recognizing how things are. And they end up missing they end up missing so many opportunities and potentialities out of that. You know, like the glass is half empty is always half full. 
were you always patient or was there something that happened that allowed you to learn patience? I have always moved at my own pace and my own focus rather than looking at the people around me. And because of my experience in organizations, such as, uh, like, you know, I, I was really into computers and stuff, but also my my patience in grinding in a video game, for instance. Like, I understand that I'm going to have to spend X amount of hours to get Cloud to level 90 in Final Fantasy VII. There's no shortcut. Even if I go to the Crash Galnica and I run around in a circle and fight the highest, you know, yielding enemies, I'm still going to have to grind it out. And I think right. that people people expect some sort of chance for somebody to somewhere come along and hook you up and not, nah, it doesn't happen. So I, I, I like people who are dependable, but I don't like depending on people. So I wow. can't trust in anything except what I'm going to do. So that's how I look at it. I've never, I've never really been big on like, well, this should have happened now and this should have happened there. I'm always like, all right, well, what am I going to do about this next? And how long is it going to take me? And how much can I fit in the one day? Using that video game analogy, I think even the most kind of unpatient people will be okay with doing that maybe in the video game. But something mm. about when it comes to themselves, it, it seems harder. And I wonder if it, it's because they're making a judgment about their worthiness, maybe, if something doesn't magically happen very quickly. Um, whereas in the video game, you know, like, there's no ego, like it's the game. It's not anything personal. Like if you have to run through here and run around, like that's what you have to do. But, but, can, but like, you know, yeah. in Final Fantasy seven, for instance, you can beat Sephiroth when you're like level 42 to 53. You have to decide that you want to get to level 90. And right. you know, some, pe some people just want to beat Sephiroth. Not everybody wants to get to level 90. And that's the difference is that so many people they see people being Sephiroth and they think that that equates to level 90 more than ever. And so they are because of social media and stuff. So they have in their mind this false sense of outcomes through their expectations. And what happens is that they face their own expectations through how they handle the adversity that comes from disappointment. And when disappointment arrives, it erodes their sense of fulfillment to the point to where fulfillment and emptiness become the same thing. So you have people who take time trying to produce shortcuts more than they invest their time in trying to just commit to a simple plan. And when that shortcut doesn't equate to the outcome that an actual plan that took more time would yield, they then begin to invest further in self-doubt and defeatist thoughts, and they ultimately remove their success mentality and that's what keeps them in a place where the lowest hanging fruit is envy and also um, self-doubt and self-appreciating factors such as, you know, what I don't, what I want, what I can't, to the point where they defeat themselves. And that's where it becomes personal because the internalization of a lack of success when seen in someone's reflection by viewing the success of someone else lies in the air of comparison. I've never compared myself to anybody in the sense of my past. That's a lot to unpack right there. But it makes sense, though, because, you know, 
when you're comparing, and it's always unfair to compare because everyone, even though they might look like they're at the same place as you, since we come from so different, I mean, even if we went through the same stuff, just the way that we look at it changes so much of our own perception of it and our perception of possibilities, our perception mm-hmm. of of struggle, our perception of good, bad, what's horrible, what's painful, what's great. And when we look at and compare, we're not seeing really the meter, maybe a value that each of us have. For example, if, if you were to look at a, a man that was very rich, uh, that, that's, a, that's such an arbitrary term. It's, it's a comparative term. He might mm-hmm. not feel rich at all. It's also one of the things that keeps on moving, you know, like this idea of enough. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Comparing isn't preparing and owning isn't sharing. Just yeah. because you compare your position to somebody else doesn't mean you're prepared for that position, let alone the one that you're in. And just because you own something doesn't mean that you're sharing it with others. How yeah. can you truly own something if you're afraid to lose it? Everybody's so afraid to lose that they never even compete because they are competing with others instead of competing with their only opponent, which is themselves. And it, it's, it's a cycle, you know, they say the ego death and all that, but it's a cycle that is so rooted in ego because your ego is attached to your fears and your insecurities. I learned early that the more I lean into being honest about my life and the um, things I go through on a daily basis, the more successful I become because my success requires less bullshit. So where did you, where did you learn all this? Some of the stuff you're saying, it it, it sounds a little Buddhist. Like, Mm. have you, I mean, like studying wise, was that something that you did formally or informally? Is it something? I, uh, I started, uh, I like to, um, I don't pick and choose from things. I look for the common thread. So like when people were afraid of Muslims, I read the Quran. And uh, okay. then I read the and I read the Bible, and then I read the Quran and the Bible again. Then I heard about the Tao, so I read the Tao, you know. And Don Miguel Ruiz, the Secret, I mean, the Five Agreements. I read that. They can grow rich, Napoleon Hill, you know, um, a happy pocket full of money, uh, David Jakarta, you know, quantum physics. All these things are tied into. Uh, even if you read a book about magic, like about uh, not necessarily Mick, uh, Wicca or whatever, but you know, something invested perhaps in mysticism. All these things, just like faith, require a level of unquestioned certainty. That's the power of belief. But, you know, people don't understand that belief is not something that is sourced in question or in being contested. Belief is rooted in certainty. People think the world is against them, but it's their faith that is against the world. Explain that bit to me. Everybody thinks that somebody's out to get them all the time. Everybody thinks that someone so you got haters or oh, you're, you're, y'all are doubting me. Nobody believes in me. Why does right. that matter? You focus on believing in yourself. You focus on the power that exists within your spirit, and you'll tap into the connection of this world and this universe. We live within the veil of perfection simply through the act of breathing as we are sustained by an invisible source. So how is it that we're so focused on the things that we can see to recognize the possibilities of the things that we can be and achieve? This contradiction is rooted in all of us because of fear. 
And faith and worry cannot occupy the same space. You choose one or the other. You think it's the fear of, well, because it's, 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 it's a pretty physical fear. And so that makes, and, and mm-hmm. you're saying fear, is it because of the fear of death? It's, it's, the, it's, it's just fear. If you look at fear mm-hmm. and love, both of them are irrational forces, but are, both of them are really rooted in certainty. When you love something, you love it. When you're afraid of something, you're afraid of it. The incredible thing about people is that they can be afraid of anything, just like they can love anything. Some people, are they're afraid of the weirdest shit in the world, man, but to them, totally normal. And some people love things that, that make no sense. Like, for instance, I don't, really, I don't, like, I don't like ranch dressing, but there are right. people who love ranch dressing. And to me, that's terrifying. Were you always open and, and questioning and, and learning throughout your whole life, or, or, or did something happen that kind of made you do that more, um, more wholeheartedly? When I was uh, super young, like fourth grade, like my earliest memory of, of, uh, of, this, of, of my line of thought or kind of the foundation was um, me and my brother on Christmas Eve ended up being you know, annoying to my parents and materialistic and pushing for gifts. And my pops got super mad at us and took us back. We were living in a hotel at this point. So he took us back to the hotel and we both got like the the age old whipping, right? Right. And my brother cried and I left because I realized that our parents were just people. You know, your parents are not people most of your life. Your parents are like, like gods are like superheroes when you look at the way they navigate reality through a higher level of understanding which typically is through sacrifice and um to me that always seemed so so beyond human and when i saw in my parents humanity and i saw in my brother's reaction also that he was he was beneath that surface and from that that day I found myself, I realized that like, yo, this childhood thing is not forever. It's temporary. And that was kind of the death of my childhood in one way with the birth of my learning. And from wow. there, I, uh, I felt like I was being prepared for something and that I always had to make choices. And I've been compelled by something that has guided me and still guides me. And I tell people all the time that, uh, I listen to the voice and I, I listen to the signs. You know, I read Duke Ellington's uh, autobiography and they always ask him, how were you able to sustain big band when big band was literally a dying um, form of musicianship and touring artist?" And he said, I just followed the signs. I didn't expect to find that in that book, but there it was. And um, I've always just believed in following the signs, even all the way up to my father's incarceration. You know, me, me and my dad didn't get along and then we got tight. And then things got weird, and then he got accused of a murder. There were all sorts of things where there were signs leading up to the fact that not that whether or not he's maintained his innocence, and it wasn't about, you know, know, the signs are telling me my dad's going to get incarcerated and accused of a murder. I was always shown that there were signs that there was a great challenge and a great, great hardship headed my way. But leading up to that, there were conversations and things like that. And then it happened. And that was the thing that, um, that said to me that like, you got to recognize that this is your lot. 
and you gotta right. you gotta keep dealing with it. Like the old saying is that God doesn't push you through anything that you can't take. And I right. think that um I think that, you know, there are people who are broken by God every day. And I think that more so God doesn't put you through anything that you can't use or build with. And okay. when I watched my dad get sentenced for life, just like I used to go to this, I tell people all the time, just like I used to go to Seven Eleven or the food line and buy some 40 ounces and I give them money and they give me my change. My, they, they put my dad in the seat and then they gave him a life sentence and they gave my life a huge change. I had to decide what to do with that. It just reminded me more that like this, this, this thing ain't no joke. There's serious powers. And like the old freeway line says on a uh, victim of the ghetto, you know, you, you, to put yourself in a situation where your your body will be in a place that your mind can't get you out of. So I had to watch my dad go through that and still go through that. But I also had to refuse to put my mind in a prison simply because of what happened to me in life. Because life is not fair, but it's not fair because the opportunities that we get, we get so many opportunities through hardship that a lot of people have some very smooth, easy lives, quote unquote, and they're just floating on through. But it's not fair because you got to go through so much just for so little. But that doesn't matter ultimately because it's worth it. You know, there's fortune within misfortune. So you right. got to be willing to say that, hey, you know, I, this happened to me, and I'm going to do something with it. And how do you make the most out of anything? Well, you you go through it and you experience it, and then you share it with others to help them be prepared for what they face. Yeah, and and the struggle along the way, when you have to question life, Mm -hmm. it makes you appraise the value of it. The people bumping along, they might be happy. They might, you know, but but like the depth of understanding for life that someone that hasn't really had to struggle with it, I just can't imagine that their appreciation is the same as someone that has. And that's the unfair part. At one time, we went through this thing, and I had to buy my brother. Uh, I had to buy my brother a bunch of groceries because he didn't have any money. And he told me how much he appreciated it, and I told him, "Don't appreciate me buying groceries. Be appreciative of the fact that you can appreciate having groceries." You know, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't eat. When, I'm not a big food person anymore, but I, I don't eat when I'm hungry necessarily. You know, I. I I stave hunger, I guess, but like my thing is I recognize that there's an appetite. Being hungry, I think, is better than being full because being full is just literally, I mean, they call it full and it's the synonym, you know, you, you can you can be a fool. Being complacent puts you in a position. Being satiated puts you in the same position where comfort becomes the enemy of your progress doesn't mean you should starve. We should all pursue balance and equilibrium, if, if anything else, in, in our thoughts and actions. And one of those equilibriums or that one of those great balances is that lack of fairness that comes in people's, you know, ignorance versus our understanding that's often yielded through hardship. But the, uh, the chance for that equilibrium to become true, the balance of the forces, they may say, is in the exchange of ideas and experiences. So my brother experienced desperation. You reread the big book. They talk about the gift of desperation, you know, in, in AA. That's one of those things is you can hit rock bottom. But, you know, it's funny how they call it rock bottom, and rock is always considered to be the hardest thing. But rock bottom doesn't break you. So, you know, you got it. Your life is going to be harder than your rock bottom. 
and that's how you know, you know what I'm saying? Like I I hit my rock bottom and it was several floors above some of the people I know, especially in the AA community. That to me, I used to go to AA meeting just to watch, just to hear the stories because it was just refreshing to be removed from my little pitiful existence and see that like, yo, I get up, I do 10 things in a day, I do 20, sometimes 30 things in a day. And I feel like I haven't done anything. And this person just, this person's victory was just in getting out of the bed. That they got out of the bed and they chose to not drink. No fame, no, I got to make the hottest 16. No, I got to get this many likes. None of that other stupid bullshit that's constantly re- reaching for validation from others in a comparative fashion. It was just simply, I got up and I got out of bed. And I didn't drink. That to me is is incredible. Yeah, you know, I mean, but, yeah, and you know that's that's a that's one of those things where you know we we kind of take for granted the things that are okay in our lives that allow us to have to struggle with all these other things. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. like yeah, yeah. As we move up, um, you know, we we if if you're the kind of dedicated person that's trying to like work on stuff like when when you increase your abilities you also increase the amount of things that you also can do and feel feel like you need to do uh, i i think so and one of the things that you just made me think about is the fact that um yeah. you know tunnel vision is is a contraction of focus and um we can't survive simply off of tunnel vision you know in my opinion like we have to have the ability to focus but we also have to have the ability to expand our perspective to see what's in the periphery and learn from that as well the outside in the inside out they say the universe was you know it's constructed off the constant expansion and contraction of matter so you know maybe that's the universal aspect of it i never really looked at it that way but maybe that's what the universe is trying to tell us man that we need to always expand and contract, yeah. Yeah, form is flexibility, and flexibility is form. And without either, if we, without the other one of that, you'll break. If you have so much form that you're inflexible, when it's time to bend, you'll break. If you're so flexible that you can't take form, when the pressure comes, you'll fold. You know, that's a thing. That reminds me of something I've always thought, and that is when you get stuck in something that kind of, like, stops, like, I w- the uh, kind of the pendulum of life, you know, um, mm. when, when you kind of get too okay or not really okay mm-hmm. but too kind of complacent it's like almost like the pendulum stops and it's almost like you become solid and I, I always use the metaphor of water water can turn to ice and you can chip ice you can break ice but mm-hmm. if you're fluid like water you can't break water but it's the same thing it's just in a different state and so you know in my life I always try to stay fluid as I can and notice that when my position becomes fixed, that's when I start chipping. <laughs> that's when things yeah. that are hitting me start breaking. Yeah. yeah it's it's just, what you're saying. It's there, hard, man. Yeah, yeah. Water is neither hard nor soft, man. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy thing. Well, man, like, so a lot of what you're talking about is these, you know, these things you've done in these areas, like these, these very different areas. How have you been able to prepare yourself to move into these different areas. Cause each one of them, like being an MC, um, mm-hmm. uh, running radio station, um, teaching each one of these things require, especially like something like teaching where that's like, like y- there's a certain formal thing that is expected. Um, mm-hmm. 
how have you been able to prepare yourself to get into these fields? Was it something that just like as you're working, these things oh, came, or, or were the things that so, you specifically set out to do? This is a fun one. It's a very, very simple answer that's complex. My TED Talk, for instance, everything, it's just yeah. a freestyle. I didn't write my TED Talk. I just said what I was going to say. I didn't ever really plan. I planned uh, certain, like, when it came to teaching. Like, the way I got my start in teaching, as a, like, professionally on a payroll at Sabbath at Stony Point, a private school, was I got invited by somebody who is on their faculty who's at WIR. I, they had an umbrella theme, which is, like, their curriculum theme for the year, and it was about, like, exciting people that you meet through music. And so they had they asked me to come and speak, and I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Who cares? Like, I, one of my mottos always was, I don't ever say no. I just say, let me know. I said, let me know. And she said, okay. And then she didn't say anything for like four months. And so I was like, she must have forgot. And then out of nowhere, it was like, hey, do you still want to come to the school and talk to the kids? And I was like, hell yeah, why not? So I got my uh, my producer, Lord Slug, my man Barnes, and I, you know, we grew up together, lived together. He's somebody else who really helped me. He was the one who was there that said, that's your name. Like, that's, that's literally okay. somebody that my life is completely tied to. So I was like, I want him to come with me, and we're going to talk about hip-hop. And so I went, and I was just like, all right, what do I do? And I was like, I'm just going to tell them my story. And I'm going I'm to kick a rhyme for them. I, did my, I wrote a rhyme over Green Onions called 730, and that was like my genome project for my rhyme style because like, um, I had an original writing style that was horizontal. 730 was written by breath uh, vertically. I use 730 in, in every situation. I still perform it because it's the rhyme that changed my life. I went ahead and I kicked that joint for them to show them, one, that you don't have to have a first day hip-hop instrumental. You can rhyme over anything. I used to rhyme over rock records, all kinds of stuff, the doors, anything. And then I had him show them what a beat, a beat looks like and how free loops works. And then I told my story about how hip-hop created an opportunity for me to be as a socially awkward, introverted person, comfortable within any room of people. And it gave me the ability to cultivate respect on a mutual level in an inclusive fashion i compared it to the love of a grandma you know like your grandma embarrasses you she pinches your cheek she makes you look dumb and no matter who's around it's respected and hip-hop right. is like your grandma you can say the whack is wrong but if you're in the cypher it's respected still you might not you might get told you that was weak but it was you getting told that was weak out of respect because everybody in the cypher wants you to kill it we ain't trying to kill each other nearly as much as even if we are trying to kill each other, we're trying to kill it. We're trying to push each other to have uh, the greatest experience and to get as deep in our talent as possible. It's like that Jet Li movie, uh, Fearless, for a young guy. The guy he plays fights the Japanese guy, and the Japanese guy, like, this is spirited competition. When we face each other, we were actually facing ourselves. So I told the kids that story. And then after that, they, I, you know, the faculty loved it, and they emailed me and said, hey, do you want to teach our kids? And they gave me a job. And this was a time where, you know, I'd worked in retail forever and my retail job ended and I was floating off a severance check and um, off of like throwing events and stuff like that. So I was truly living the rap life at that point. It was a big party and it was a big creative time and it was really, really fun. And I got to experience a level of freedom where uh, that a lot of people probably will never get to experience just because of the way their life is set up. I was so fortunate to get that. I'd also worked with Art 180 some in classrooms. But like these, these small, these small experiences where I would go in only knowing who I am, 
is and right. looking at life like a freestyle. Honesty lacks controversy. So for me to freestyle, I can't I can't make up some bullshit. I gotta just talk my talk. I gotta tell my story. You'll never run out of things to talk about if you tell your story because your life isn't over. You know, I'm living, and if I'm living, I'm learning. If you're not learning, you're not living. So I would go into these situations, even if I'm in the role or position as a teacher, actually there to learn. And that's how I've ended up teaching at universities. That's how I've learned how to, you know, I've ended up teaching teachers, teaching students. And uh, it's all just been about the fact that I'm actually here to learn. That's the trick. That's just the big thing. I don't have to think about it because I know who I am. And if the reason I'm in the room with you is because of who I am, why do I need to think any further on this? Let's just mm. see where it goes. People always show up to get talked to, and they're so tired of that that they're so much more open when you show up and you say, I'm only talking because I want to listen. Wow. And what is so an MC? And an MC is all about moving the crowd. And the only way you can right. move the crowd is to have that, that call and response. Interaction and yeah, so that's how hip hop ties into everything I do. So when you're talking about how you know who you are, when when do you feel like you kind of nailed that down? Because you you explained earlier about kind of like what the moment was when you kind of learned to think the way you do. But when when do you mm-hmm. feel like you kind of nailed down who you are as a human? Oh, when I uh, when I realized the only thing I can tell you that I know about myself for sure is that I'm not you. Yeah. Wow. Like factually. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's it. What are we? What are we really? We're in a semblance of ideas, experiences, uh, influences, and emotions, all these things. But the one thing that those things are always going to be guaranteed to fluctuate. But the one thing that's certain about that entire vehicle is that we are not anyone but ourselves. It takes so much energy to be someone else while being yourself that it will literally age you in front of people and kill you. The beauty of that, too, is that it makes the whole comparing yourself thing. Yeah, it eliminates that entire line of thought. No longer need to focus on, oh, well, so-and-so did this, and they have this going on for them. It doesn't matter. You know, I love doing these with people because... I love highlight, like my, my thing, the reason I started this, this podcast was kind of like to show, like for, it was de- kind of designed for folks that might want to try and do something, but they're holding back mm-hmm. for some reason. Like maybe it's, they don't think that it's the right time or they can't see, you know, they have a dream, but like they can't see how they could actually start to do it. You know, they can mm-hmm. see themselves maybe at the end of it, they can't, and they can see where themselves are right now, but they can't see where those two things connect. And it was kind of just to show how, like, every human being that's doing something cool, they're a human being too, but they just made these steps to get there. And so it's kind of like pulling the curtain back a little bit to kind of show, you know, here's how this thought process works, and this is how you get your feet moving and get to this place. You know, the, uh, the thing I will say, that one of the things, there's two things I'll say. In fact, okay. number one is that uh, my my advice for anybody who is trying to figure out how to start and their number one thing is that they're afraid to fail, just make your goal that you're going to fail. And uh, the other thing too is that, uh, you know, the depths of wisdom are an equal footing through understanding. And we only run the chance of thinking that we 
aren't capable of grasping the concepts when we overstand. We are all equal under wisdom because we're all students. And so I encourage people to accept that just because you don't understand it now doesn't mean that you can't learn it. The goal isn't to know it. It's just to keep learning it. And the young people know the most because they don't know anything at all. So we, 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 we cripple ourselves through the ignorance of knowledge. We constantly tell ourselves that we know how something is to the point to where we, we form expectations that are unrealistic, but are reality. It's a mental prison. And kids, what I learned from teaching middle school especially, was that they know everything because they don't know anything at all. They're just there to learn it. They might think they know how something works, but they're not going to know how it works until they try it. And if they fail at it, they're like, oh, well, then I get why I failed here, or maybe that was hard. You know, they, they never limit their existence to the perspective of their presumed uh, functionality model or expectations or anything. It's, it's incredible. Like, I used to have exercises. I used to structure learning a bit, just using exercises that I used on myself to improve freestyle. And instead, I would just go in and be like, all right, you guys are going to write about whatever you want, but it has to be you. You know, they spend their entire day with rules. And then I come in, I'm like, yeah, there's no rules. There's no rules in the studio. So why are there rules in my classroom? The only rule is show respect and, and create with authenticity. Even if you're talking to something that makes no sense at all, do it from you. Don't do it because somebody else thought it was cool or you're trying to sound like something. Do it from your creative free point because it's so crazy how we pick up so much and we don't recognize the things that we pick up are supposed to be put down so that we can pick up new things. You know, you travel the world with your luggage, you're not going to get that far. It, you know, a lot of my life is, is kind of mysterious, I've been told. In my opinion, it's not that my life is mysterious, it's just that my life is, is simple because this is what I do. This is how I live. It doesn't end when I get off the phone with you, I go back to being like, okay, I'm going to but now, like, this is what I do every day, all day, because I made a choice a long time ago when I recognized that chance is a choice and choice is a chance. My only chance at being everything that I am is to choose to be everything that I am when I'm given the chance to choose to, do, to go the other way. And the more successful you get, the more often those opportunities to deviate show up, and you have to make a hard choice to not take a shortcut. There are things I could have done to to go another way, you know, but just like my business is called, there's no other way. This is literally it. I've been told no by people that I wanted to hear yes, and then I realized that when they told me no, they allowed me to tell myself yes. It's never going to be easy, man, but it's not that hard. And that concludes my interview with Black Lick. You can check him out on most platforms under his name, spelled B-L-A-C-K-L-I-Q. I would like to thank him for taking the time to talk with me and thank you for listening. For more episodes of this podcast, check out variousthingspodcast.com. This has been Various Things.